ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's a question some philosophers like to ask, which goes along these lines. When you talk about yourself, I did this last Wednesday, I think this, I think that, what is this I that you're talking about? What is it that makes you, you? You could say it's the thoughts that come rushing out of the body you inhabit, the babble of words and ideas inside your brain. But what happens when the brain changes physically, when part of it shuts down and the place you have all that language moves to another part of your head? Are you still the same person afterwards? Can you be the same person afterwards? This is a question that Ben McKelvey has been asking himself a long while. When Ben was 27, he suffered a stroke something that's not meant to happen to guys in their 20s. And language suddenly became almost impossible for him. Ben recovered quickly, which is just as well, because Ben is a journalist and author, and so he returned to normal life. But normal no longer felt normal. It was like Ben had shifted houses in his own head. Ben went from working at a frivolous but fun lads magazine to becoming an embedded journalist with the Australian Defence Forces in Iraq. And it was there that Ben realised that the shock of war can also bring on this strangely displaced sense of self. Ben has written a memoir and it's called A Scar Is Also Skin. Hello, Ben. Richard, how are you? Well, sir, looking back on that 27-year-old self that you were Mm. nearly two decades ago. What were you like? How would you describe yourself from that time before you had that stroke? Uh, I was full of bluff and bluster, that's for sure. I was full of testosterone. I enjoyed uh, masculine exploits. I was drinking quite a lot. I was a pretty cynical person, but I wouldn't have considered myself to be a cynical person at the time. What do you mean by cynical? In what way? I think I had this sort of arm's length relationship with a lot of life and it was sort of this defense mechanism that if you if you don't engage with something earnestly you can't be hurt by it by your opinions by your perspectives you know so I think I was probably quite a contrarian, which sort of worked at Ralph magazine. You know, it was a sort of a pretty contrarian magazine. It was sort of looking at the absurdity of culture and everything around us. There is a virtue in that, you know, like... It's funny for a start. Well, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. It's fun. Mm. It's, uh, you know, it, it kills the sacred cows. You know, it's, there's something about the Australian character that sort of tends towards that sort of humour. But I think it's a coat that I had to shrug off and it's one that I probably should have shrugged off before I was 27. But, you know, where I was working and and how I was living and the things that I was enjoying, it it took a little longer. What was the lifestyle like working for a lads mag back in in those days? It was pretty awesome. (laughs) We had had maybe 17 or 18 staff and we probably could have put the mag out with maybe five or six people. So there was a lot of time to go overseas and interview people and do absurd things. And, you know, like some of the stories were absolutely absurd. I I remember one of the guys I was working with, put on a, a man nappy and just went to the park and lived for a couple of days and wrote a story about it. 
was just that, those kind of flights of fancy were, were things that were encouraged in the magazine. And that's the part of the mag that I actually really enjoyed. You, you said that uh, at one point, one of your favourite features you did was in the history section where you and the whole team kind of recreated the D-Day landings yeah. on Omaha Beach yep. with confectionery. Yep. How did that work, Ben? Explain that. Well, we had jelly for the water right. and we had, uh, <laughs> I think it was like honey crumble for the sand and, and we chewed up jelly babies for, for blood and guts and we, you know, made Tim Tam landing boats and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And the thing that I loved about that about that story is that, like, I spent a long time researching that to make sure that the beach that we were actually doing it was the right beach. You know, I can't remember what it was. It was probably Omaha putting the right type of gun emplacements there and things like that. And I was like, you need a dedication to your absurdity for your absurdity to really land. So the historical accuracy was was pretty good well, when you came to this. I don't think anyone else cared. I think it was no. just like, I think that's probably what I'd rather be doing on a Tuesday is getting, getting the accuracy of this stuff right. Not that any of those soldiers else. landed on the beach in a Tim Tam. No, but, exactly. Uh, and I certainly didn't have any uh, D-Day survivors <laughs> going, well, your, your dedication to that double page and Ralph was, was first class. Anthony Beaver didn't send you an email saying, well done, sir, <laughs> no, well done, well right. played, sir. No. He didn't do with that. So, so you're having this pretty cruisy life. Yeah. Very cruisy life. A yeah. lot of fun. You're being paid well to paid play a lot. Poorly to play a lot, play yes. Poorly. I yes. beg your pardon, but a lot of freebies. Nonetheless, you say that you had been prone to a lot of anxiety as yeah. a kid and anxiety attacks. What would bring on anxiety for you, anxiety attacks for you as a kid? Well, it was hard to tell what would bring it on, but they were always based around this, this existential fear and angst and the largeness of the universe, the smallness of life, the smallness of my life, you know. But I think part of the significant problem was that even to this day, I don't see any of the feelings that I had as abnormal or wrong. I was like, well, that's an appropriate response to the universe being this big, my life being this small, you know, everything disappearing, you know, all of it will be dust in, you know, a thousand years time or whatever. I thought that that was an appropriate response, so it was hard for me to get out of it. You had a teenage friend who died of leukaemia. Yeah. Did that bring on those thoughts of mortality, the briefness of life to your mind? Was that part of it? Oh, think? undoubtedly, yeah. He and I were together the day that he was diagnosed and the expectation was that he was going to be treated and he was going to get out. But over a year, for some reason, he just didn't respond to treatment and he slowly wasted away in this hospital that was just down the road from from my house. And I'd go and visit him all the time and it was only right at the end that, that we were told that he was going to die. And I had been telling myself that he wasn't going to die. And I had created this artifice that was sort of working for me. And then I was confronted with the reality of it. And it felt like there was just this hustle and bustle bubble that I'd put myself in. And the reality was my anxiety and my fear and my mania. So when, so when he died, it left like a hole in the universe that you couldn't explain or something? Was well, that when it? he died, I was like, well, you cannot escape the reality. You know, I couldn't escape the reality of, of his circumstance. Like I'd lied to myself that he wasn't dying, but he died because that's the reality. And my anxiety and mania was that I was lying to myself that life means anything, but you can't escape the reality that it doesn't mean anything. When would you get these panic attacks? The worst one that I had and the one that I was that I was hospitalized with was when my life was undoubtedly excellent. You know, I was in love with someone that I uh, went to uni with. We were having the best time. I was working in this bar that I just loved working at. I had unexpectedly been accepted into university. I'd been a terrible student, but I was at uni. 
And then I think it might have been a case of vertigo of just like feeling like my life was good, but then this little, you know, this cold shoulder, these bony fingers on my shoulder just saying, no, 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 it doesn't mean anything. It's not good. You're not, you're not enjoying yourself. And then just sort of falling off a cliff. And sometimes I, there would just be this, this surge of adrenaline and I'd get up and run. And there were times in my life, in my teens, my 20s, where I would just be out on the street in my undies because I'd be in bed. And then I'd have this surge, this fear. I remember it happened once in Tijuana. I just ran out of this guest house and I'm just like, oh, I'm just on this cold street in the middle of Tijuana in my undies, <laughs> panicking, you know. And then it, eventually I'd be able to get back to bed and, you know. And what was the thought in your head that was making you want to run? I think it, I think it was like fast forwarding into into the future where we are all gone, everything is gone, that we have gotten to the place of heat death or something like that where it was just a completely cold, lifeless universe and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm here. <laughs> and could this happen at any moment then? At oh, any moment, right. yeah. yeah. So like you say, you studied journalism and you got a job at the late Juice magazine, yeah. which was the sort of alternative to Rolling Stone at the time, a rock magazine. So these are the last days of rock mags, essentially, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> this is a side thing, but you got to interview Beyonce. She was just about to or had just left Destiny's Child, that trio she was part of. Tell me about this time you spent with Beyonce. Well, she was 20 when I interviewed her and her father was domineering in every space that she was in. And she was melancholy, you know, when I interviewed her. And so we actually ended up spending a decent amount of time together. You know, we were meant to be doing a whatever it was, half hour interview, but we ended up going to Sydney and Melbourne, basically chatting about what a good life might look like for her. And she was like, she couldn't even conceive it. She's like, I haven't had three consecutive days off since I was 15. I just want to sit in a house in Miami with my friends for a little bit, you know. And so you'd spent all this time with this melancholy woman who yeah. may be thinking that maybe this is as good as it gets for me from now on. When you saw her perform, though, what was the difference? Oh, I mean, it was incredible. She was very much a human being when I was interviewing her. I remember us, uh, after she'd done a performance, uh, this was a television performance at Rove, and she was just like, where can I get some food? And she ended up eating a Chico roll and she was kind of like asking me what's in this and I'm like, I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> it's a national <laughs> but, secret, actually. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. But it was kind of like, you know, just this sort of the minutiae of day-to-day life going from thing to thing and, you know, feeling the stress of this and, you know, these clothes aren't quite right and this doesn't feel nice. And she was really worried about her hair. She had this big orange plume of of hair that... that she was really kind of like, does it look okay? You know, it's like, I think you look awesome. She didn't feel good about her own body image. And all of that permeated in the conversations that we we're having. And then we went to Sydney and the first song that they did was Independent Woman Part 2. And Beyonce just says, tell me what you think about me. And there's like this hit of horns and bass and drums. And then it just stops. And the place is just like apoplectic. And I'm like, who is that like, you know, it's like there's this thing, you know, there's this, there's this talent, this ineffable quality that some people have where it's just like they're up on stage and they are it and Beyonce was it and it just wasn't represented in any of the conversations that we had and it was kind of a, it was an important lesson for me because I'm kind of like, man, people have these amazing multitudes. So you go from Juice Magazine to Ralph Magazine, this lad's mag. You're having this life, you say poorly paid, but a lot of fun, a lot of freebies on the side, yeah. trips overseas. Yeah. 
recreating the Normandy landings with confectionery, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Great fun and all that. It's a day in the office. And then we get to the 16th of July, 2004. Mm. How much of that day do you remember? I probably came to work late because I pretty regularly came to work late. Um, I didn't do much work in the morning. None of us did that much work in the morning, you know, sort of reply to some emails and do a few bits and pieces. And then most of us, or a lot of us, this group of guys at Ralph would go to the gym in our lunch hour. And I was in the boxing room of the Catholic club and there was hip hop blaring and I'm drenched in my own sweat and, you know, just banging away and just feeling great. And California Love, the two-pack song was playing. I'm rapping along. It's one of those songs. You know, there's some songs that you just know all the words to. I just love that song. And then all of a sudden, all the words sort of start to disappear. What do you mean by disappear? Well, I couldn't rap along to the next word. I didn't know what was happening next. I didn't know what had just happened. You know, I just couldn't keep in my mind. I mean, I guess when you're boxing, there's a place where you're boxing and you're thinking about your punches and you're thinking about your form and your technique. There's another part in the brain where it's like, I know where I am, you know, I know the circumstance around me. And I guess that there was another pocket in my mind where I was like, you know, I'm singing along to all the lyrics of of California Love, you know, not singing them out out loud, but in my mind, I'm there, I'm, I'm with it. And then that part of my brain stops working. I'm like, well, why is that? why is that happening? That's weird. You know, it's kind of like you'd be driving along in your car and then all of a sudden there'd be something that doesn't, you know, the steering wheel doesn't feel right or the clutch doesn't feel right or there's a sound. And then all of a sudden that's what you're concentrating on, which is something that had just been part of the, of the machinery before. So all of the words disappear and I'm like, oh, I'll wait to the chorus. You know, the chorus will come. I know the chorus, you know, and then the chorus came and that blew past as well. And I couldn't hold on to any of that. But then I knew there was one of the words I was like, which is the word California. I was like, well, I know that word. I'm like, what's that word? And couldn't get that word. I you mean like what What does California mean? Yeah. I, well, there's, I just knew in the back of my mind, I was like, there's a word that I know. There's one word that I know. You know, I definitely know that word. And then I didn't know that word. And I, I, I was sort of searching for the associations with the word as I was boxing. I was like... Ah, it's a, you know, like if I could find it, I'd be, it's a place and, you know, it's in America and, you know, there's weed and oranges or whatever it is. But there were no associations. So I got in the shower and, you know, we, we, we automatically assume that I think when you're 27 is that everything's okay and you're going to be okay. And then I got out of the shower and that's when, at that point, I had these butterflies in my eyes and, you know, everything was sort of a bit weird. And I walked out of the gym and one of the guys that I worked with was there and he'd just come out of the gym as well. And I looked at him and I wanted to say, a strange thing is happening to me. But A, I didn't really know who he was. I knew he was a friend and I I just couldn't really place who he was. And then I couldn't say anything. So I, I started to speak and nothing that was recognizable to speech came. It just With gibberish. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I stopped myself. I started, you know, and then, and then sort of stopped. And it was only when I saw his look of fear, he, he was really scared, you could tell, that it came to me that just how isolated I was. I was like, I can't talk to this guy. I don't even know who he is. I just had this immense feeling of, of disassociation and sadness and then just tears came on. Well, wasn't sobbing. It was just this profound sadness. 
you couldn't have known then, but what was going on in your vascular system at that time? Well, a clot had wedged itself somewhere and then oxygen was not getting to parts of the brain and there was an area where cells were starting to die. It had created this blockage, if you like, or or this sort of dead space where the brain function that's required for language and for reading and things like that, you know, there's these signals that are bouncing around and they're going, okay, we go here, we go there, we go there, and then we, you know, we form a sentence or we form an idea. And it couldn't get there because there was this dead area. So I was stuck on my own. I was <laughs> in, the, in the loneliest place. Just, just dissociated and in big trouble. So you were brought to St. Vincent's Hospital near King's Cross in Sydney. Yeah. Now, St. Vincent's is famously, because it's close to the cross, it family has a lot of patients admitted there that are going through some drug psychosis or having some overdose issue. You're a young guy. Mm. Is that what you look like to them, some guy who just ingested too many drugs? That's what happened when I went to the medical centre. First they took me to the medical centre, which was close to our work, and this guy, my friend Chris, took me there. And it was there that they assumed that, that I was a drug user. And they handed me a form and a pen and said, can you please fill this in before we do anything? And I was like, I don't, <laughs> you know, like I couldn't talk. It was all squiggles. I, could, I couldn't even tell which way I was up, you know. And Chris, had, who told me later, he said, he needs to go to hospital. He needs to go to hospital. And it took quite a long time for them to recognise that that I, I wasn't having some sort of um, episode relating to drugs. But when they took me to the hospital, from what I know, I have a very spotty memory of of being in hospital. I have these sort of like grabs of memory, one of which is sitting there watching a television and trying to put all the pieces together. It was the news was on and I just couldn't couldn't do anything. But I only had grabs there of of memory. So the news was on. Could you understand what was being said? No, it was I couldn't understand what what was being said, but I also couldn't understand why there was this sequence of images. There was someone swimming in a pool and I'm like, okay, swimming in a pool, that means something. There's a medal ceremony. I'm like, oh, does that relate to the pool? And then there's a house on fire. That obviously gone to a different story. And then so, I'm so, trying to put it all together. Right, so, so you lost verbal language, but also visual language yeah. then. Just the, the sort of framework of... Of, of meaning. I, I'm feeling slightly panicky as you tell me, just hearing <laughs> you tell me this. Were you panicking at the time or were you too ill to be panicking? Well, I, I don't think I had the, the cognitive capacity to be panicking at the time. I wasn't panicking. And then the first diagnosis that I got was that there was some sort of infection in my cerebrospinal fluid. And that was calming for me because I'm like, oh, this is like when you get the flu. You you get the flu, you feel terrible, and then you revert to where you were previously. And I was like, I just waited to revert to where I had been previously. I would have been panicking if I knew that I was getting brain damage. When did you finally understand you'd had a stroke? It was only a couple of days after I'd been in hospital. I'm sure somebody would have told me before I actually cottoned on to the fact that I was having a stroke. But it's, it's a teaching hospital at St. Vincent's and a doctor came by and he was talking to some students about me, they, you know, about the case and how I'd presented and what was going on and blah, 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 blah. He's, you know, talking about this is Ben, you know, he's 27, he's this, that and whatever and he's, he's suffering a phasic stroke and blah, 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 blah and he just keeps talking and then the students leave and I sort of stop and I'm like, hold on, stroke. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, me? Me, I had a stroke. He's like, yeah. And then he walks off and I was like, Oh shit! I just. <laughs> but you, you're saying that you're saying I was. Me, I could take a stroke. Them. Yeah. So you'd already started to recover. I started to recover the day of the stroke. 
the, the moment for me was friends came, they were standing around the, the bed, they're chatting to each other. I'm just sitting there silently. A friend has a T-shirt that says Vancouver and I'm just trying so hard to figure out what that word is. There was contextual stuff, black bears and there was a mountain, there was snow and stuff like that. Looking a bit Canadian. Looking very Canadian. And I'm like, come on. And then V and I I finally got V and I sort of put it in my mind and rolled it around. And then finally I had this breakthrough. I'm like Vancouver and I had to stop myself from while my friends were chatting about this, that, whatever, Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, you know, it was in that moment that I was like, this is going to be, it's going to be a bit of a solitary journey, you know. So you said you felt disconnected from the world, mm. terrifyingly disconnected from the world. Were you disconnected from yourself as well? That's something that I've thought about a lot because I wonder whether the self is sort of constantly reinforcing its idea of who you are. So if you have a stroke, you're like, this is who I am, this is myself. But one thing that I did think about quite a lot when I was in the hospital was is it my capacity for language that is damaged or am I damaged? Am I a different person? Language comes from the brain. Emotion comes from the brain. Memory comes from the brain. You know, I did wonder what the self is and whether that self had been damaged by this stroke outside of just language and there were other aspects too. So this blood clot had formed. It had travelled through your system. It had hit your brain somewhere in your language centre, effectively. Yeah, I mean, I, the language centre thing, I think, is a bit of a furphy that, that you know, lots of different um, lots of different parts of the brain are used for language for and they bounce language. Across, right. the, across the two lobes. You could probably say the damage was where there was an area where there had to be lots of signals bouncing around and the signals couldn't bounce around. You know, when you're trying to um, merge traffic into the eastern distributor or something like that, you know, and then the eastern distributor's down and then just like, oh my God, what happens? And all of this traffic ends up going to these like side streets and there's traffic jams and it's very difficult for us to figure out where we can go next. Even when I could actually speak, it was very plodding and methodical and I'd think about it. Did you think, once you understood what had happened to you, that when the blood clot hit that part of your brain and it starved it of oxygen and it killed effectively a whole bunch of brain cells yeah. there. Did you think that in doing that, the blood clot had somehow erased a part of you? That was a concern. That was a concern that I had. My concern was that I can't feel and emote and, and live in the way that I had previously. You know, like I tried to read and I tried to sort of engage with people and joke and things like that. And it was all very faltering and very difficult and it was really dispiriting. And then I started uh, watching these Kubrick films. Late at night at 9.30 on SBS, they're having this Kubrick retrospective. I started watching these Kubrick films back to back to back. And during the day, I had had a lumbar puncture and... I was having these incredible migraines and I was some morphine for the migraines and I was vomiting and the days were just horrible, you know. And then at night, for some reason, about nine o'clock, things sort of would start to get a bit better. I had this tiny little television, this tinny speaker, I pressed it against my ear and then there were just these images, you know, these beautiful Kubrick images. I could kind of understand what he was saying, you know, like I could understand the emotionality of of the movies, you know, it was 2001 and Barry Lyndon and all this sort of stuff. And this was soaring for me. This was like, perhaps I'm not going to have a life that's 
as attached to language as it had been previously, but I can feel, I can feel, I can feel, you know. I'm emotionally intact, yeah. in other words. Well, if I can still enjoy my life. You know, there's a theory that says that we don't really get a strong sense of identity as human beings until we get language as, yeah. as babies. We start to get language and then we get the strong sense of self. So pretty much we're kind of creatures that are dressed in language or we're minds that are dressed in language. But if you've lost that momentarily or the place for language is happening elsewhere in your brain, the language you're hearing in your head as you think, was that the same voice or, or did you have a sense of it being a different voice that was thinking? I had these strong feelings and in retrospect, I assigned an emotional word to those feelings. Was I doing that at the time? I probably wasn't but I still had those feelings. What I mean is the voice, though. I mean, as boys, we become men when our, and our voices break, and it's yeah. kind of wild yeah. because you open your mouth and this voice you don't recognise starts coming out of you. Was it any way like that? I don't think so. I do think that I was, that I was uh, affected by the fact that I couldn't articulate myself. I would like to position myself in a room and in a conversation by speaking in a certain way, and I couldn't do any of that. And that, as a young man, affected me because I was like... I want to impose myself in situations. I can't do that. That was a tough one for, for someone who's that age. Given that you'd been having anxiety attacks as a teenager, as a young man, over these profoundly existential questions like, what does it mean that I'm a tiny speck in a vast, imponderable universe, an indifferent universe? Was there a similar sense of, what am I anyway? Who am I? Did those thoughts come to mind? They didn't actually. And I think it was a defence mechanism because... After the stroke, I, I wholly rejected the fact that I had brain damage. I fought just to get back to where I had been the day before I had the stroke. That was exactly what I was doing. This wasn't a moment of resilience. This wasn't, you know, me being able to have a tack in my life and do something different. It was just like, I'm going to the same bars. I'm having as many drinks as I had previously. I'm going to go and work at Ralph. I'm going to do the exact same things. I'm just going to cram myself back into that life that I'd been at previously. And there was such a focus to that, that it was only later that I sort of started to think about the sort of larger existential questions because I had a goal then after I came out of hospital. I was like, I'm just going to be the same dude. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. How quickly were you able to go back to normal life, quote, unquote, given that you were so determined to do so, Ben? Well, I went back too quickly. It was, it was only a few months after I'd had the stroke that I went back to the office. And I remember trying to write my first feature. I spent quite a lot of time rearranging the sentences, rearranging the paragraphs, changing the, the syntax and the, the grammar and whatever it was. And then finally, in my mind, I was like, okay, this thing reads well, you know, it has structure, it, you know, sort of makes sense. And so I took it to the editor and walked back to my desk and I had a direct uh, line of sight to him. And he was obviously interested to see what it was going to be like. And I saw him read it. And then it took, 
it took five seconds for him to just sort of start to slump and then he was head in his hands and then he was just like, what am I going to do? And it's funny because I remember it, you know, you sort of tell that story and you're like, it's a sad story, but in the context of Ralph magazine and the fact that how disassociated I was with my work at the time, I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't need to do good work. It was more about the lifestyle that I thought it was funny. I just thought this is, it was such a funny situation. I was like, this poor guy, this poor editor has his handcuffed to this guy with brain damage. Who's his, who's his features editor. What had you given him? What was on the page? You'd oh, given it was him? just nonsense. The sentences were incomplete, characters would be introduced and hadn't explained who that person was. There was just logic gaps. It, it just was... Not well, incoherent. Was it was it? incoherent, yeah. It was, it was definitely unpublishable, even at Ralph magazine. Nonetheless, how long before you were writing again at a decent capacity? Well, I think probably about six or seven months after the stroke I was back to, I don't know about normal, but definitely, you know, I was writing features and things like that. And even though my, my writing was sort of had become uh, less technical, I actually think it was better. I think, I think the, the features that I wrote at Ralph after my stroke, they just sort of were a bit more compassionate understanding of the human experience. And, you know, like I wrote this piece where I went to Las Vegas for the World Series of Poker and reading it back, it captured something in the room this air of desire and desperation that are, that are in these boring, dour rooms that we have when we have uh, events like the World Series of Poker. And I just don't think I, I would have been able to capture that and understand the human experience without me having had this human experience. So you weren't hiding behind ironic smartassery anymore, in other words? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. I mean, I was still mostly ironic smartassery, but probably less than I had than, than was being exhibited previously. So throughout this period, you're getting reg- regular checkups, regular MRIs, and you're seeing how your brain is, has changed and is changing. What did that look like to see that series of scans of your, your changing brain throughout this period? Is well, there was... The gap where where the stroke had sort of created this brain damage. Was, was that no like activity? A, was that like a black spot or something? Yeah, was pretty much. Yeah. It's you know it just doesn't light up. It's grey. It's white. The areas where there's activity, there was, there was grey in that area. But then there's other parts of the brain that are sort of peripheral that are not being used, and there was there was some sort of more white activity in those areas. So you know it just sort of picked up the slack, and those were the areas that were giving me the capacity to speak, to write, to to understand symbols and language and meaning and all those sorts of things. And that is something that I should have looked at and gone wow, what a miracle, what a gift. But I didn't. I was just like, oh, good. At least I can just go back to where I'd been previously. I don't want to know about the, about the mechanics of it. I don't want to be pathologized. I just want to keep going. So here we are in the emerging field of neuroplasticity. Once mm. again, I talk about this a lot in the show. It's such an exciting and fascinating uh, new field of research. So it sounds to me like what's happening here, and this is what you were led to understand, is that that part that was struck and, and the part of your brain that was killed, if, if you like, by the blood clot, the stroke, yeah. it resulted in the brain finding workarounds. Yeah. It found new neural pathways to allow you to write, speak and construct language again coherently. The stroke could be the Sydney Harbour Bridge falling down and they can't construct the Sydney Harbour Bridge again for some reason. But then they create these arterial roads and turn them into highways and, you know, there's these sort of other um, roads that could be used. They just put all this infrastructure around that so the ride is still possible and is still quick. That's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, it's the best. <laughs> it's the best. I mean, it's I owe everything to it, you know. So that's an exceptional example of, of neuroplasticity. But that's 
shooting a basketball. That's falling in love. That's everything that we do. You know, we sort of create these brain states that if we use them over and over again, part of the reason that the capacity came back to me was because I was trying to read and I was trying to speak. And, you know, like if after the stroke I had just basically been put in a room and and, uh, and had no access to language, then it wouldn't have built up. But neuroplasticity is, as far as I understand it, the soul of who we are. You know, outside of memory, it is it is who we are. It is, the, it is our behaviours. It's the brain states that make us uh, be able to do the things that we do. One of the last stories you did for Ralph magazine was when you went to South Central Los Angeles and you spent some time on patrol with a group of police officers who were driving around LA dealing with homicides. You were taken to scenes where there was gunfire, you were exposed to gunfire. What did that teach you about the secrets of life and death, Ben? It was the it was the exhilaration of the circumstance that they were in, be it the guys who were shooting at, at Blondie and Tim. They, they didn't nearly hit me, but there was, you know, there, there was bullets that were flying over, the, over there. You're closer to that than you ever wanted to be. Yeah, exactly. And the guys who were doing the shooting, they were sort of in this circumstance where it was a system that required them to act the way that they did. And I wrote this bluff and bluster Ralph story of like the excitement of like, oh, well, what's happening? Like it's like being in a movie or something like that. But I had just started to feel that these people were trapped in these circumstances in this system. It was always going to play out the way that it was going to play out. It's going to be a tragedy for these people. It's going to be exhilaration in the moment. And then it's going to be tragedy later on, you know, and you're going to, you're going to feel the heaviness of this. And I sort of started to understand that. I couldn't represent that in my work, which I did later on, but I, I had just started to feel it. You decided you were going to go to the Middle East. And this is at a point when... The world was well into the Iraq war. What was your plan? Well, I had read Robert Fisk's uh, memoir, Great War for Civilization, and it had just embedded itself into my brain. Not just the tragedy of the conflicts that he was covering, but all of this incredible culture, all this generosity, all this Arabic generosity, you know, the... The food, as he describes it, the interactions with people, as he describes it. I was like, I, I really... It was this incredible curiosity to go and see it. So I just took all of my leave and then went over and travelled through Syria. This was before the Civil War, Israel, Jordan. And I was like, I really do feel like I want to work in this place because I was so interested in not just the conflict. I do think that that Iraq was, as a, as a young journalist, sort of the biggest story of the last 25 years. But also Arabic culture and hospitality I wanted to be involved with. I've had friends who've gone to pre-war Syria and have talked about the astonishing hospitality, like you mentioned there. But a bit like Wake and Fright, sometimes the hospitality can become terrifying. Yeah. Tell me about this crazy night out you had in Aleppo. So in Syria, I very rarely saw people who spoke English as their first language, but there was an American kid who was, you know, maybe 21, 22 uh, in the souk. And so, of course, we gravitated towards each other. We sort of chatted. And what was he doing in Syria? He was in Syria as part of this language program at Princeton and he was probably from an OGA like the CIA or the NSA. So he was sort of doing this study with a view to migrating to this part of the American intelligence All apparatus. right, so he was a spy in training. He then. was a spy in training in Syria. Um, and we decided that we were going to go out and try and find a place where we could have beers, which you can do in Aleppo, but it's sort of like visiting injecting rooms, you know. It's, it's, like, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a place that's sort of socially acceptable. Right. So we went and we had a couple of beers at this bar that we'd found. 
And then we were walking down the street and there was a shop front and there was these ornate chairs and a desk and we were beckoned in by this guy and he gave us a lot of whiskey. There was a lot of guns around. We couldn't really figure out what was going on. Turns he, out, he showed you his guns? Oh, they were, they were stacked up against the wall. They were AK-47s and... So he's giving you whiskey, you and this American guy whiskey. Yeah. He shows you his guns. Yeah. Is, is, is a little alarm bell ringing in your head at this point? Well, there yeah. is a little bit, but uh, I was also captured by the adventure of the whole thing because I was like, well, this guy is, he's clearly part of the part of the establishment. You know, he's part of the Assadist establishment. This is kind of a great story. It's a really interesting thing. And then the night sort of, the night sort of went crazy when he said that he was going to take us out for dinner, which was, it was pretty late already and we were all pretty drunk. And he puts us in this black Mercedes and he is driving so fast and he's just swigging whiskey and we're driving forever. And it's a decent way from Aleppo to Iraq, but, it, you know, we, we were in the car for an hour and I was like, what is going on? And we kept are you getting closer him, to the Iraq border, are you? We are. We're, we're, heading, uh, we're heading east towards Iraq. So if you're just seeing these signs, I don't even know where we are, but most of the street signs are in Arabic, but some are in English and they're saying, you know, Iraq, 200 kilometres or whatever. And I'm like, well, it's still a little bit <laughs> too close. And he actually took us to a prison and we went to the front of this prison and he described the torture that happened at this prison and how there were bad people in there. He was just showing off. And then he puts us in the car and we keep going and I'm talking to Cole in the back seat. The American. Yeah, yeah, kind of whispering about, you know, what do we do? And he said, well, we have to drink the booze because, you know, the, the immediate concern is that he's going to run us off the road and kill us. And so we're taking the whiskey and we're drunk and trying to make these decisions and, you know, like... You're drinking all his whiskey, so... So he can't drink So he all. can't drink, so he'll... He, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we're like, what are we going to do? And then he takes us to this military airfield. I just see these shapes of Russian planes and we're just like oh, man, what is happening? And then it's dark, there's armed people everywhere, and then he pulls up at this beautiful restaurant. <laughs> Inside <laughs> like the airbase? Garden restaurant in the middle of the airbase. And it was like, oh, we were going to a restaurant after all, and he just drove us 90 minutes to this restaurant that he really liked, which was a great restaurant. He kept drinking. He sort of got angrier and angrier for some reason. He decided that he thought that I was perhaps an Israeli because my name was, my name was Ben and said, well, you know, what is this Ben? And he said, oh, it's Benjamin, which is the Arabic, but also the Hebrew. Right. And he's like, Benjamin? You know, like, obviously, there's not a lot of Benjamin, Arabic Benjamins, but there are uh, a lot of... There is a Benjamin Netanyahu. It's a very in, famous um, Benjamin. Yeah, 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 that's right. He was angry and calling people and, you know, like he was, he was obviously a pretty unhinged sort of guy. And so eventually we just decided that we, we just have to walk out of here. And so we thanked him. Thank you very much. He's yelling at us and muttering and swearing. And, and then we walk out and then we're just in this airbase. <laughs> like, okay, in, now in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. In the yeah. middle of like in, in the, the middle, middle of Syria. Syria. Desert. Yeah. Right. And then eventually the Kurds, these Kurds picked us up and then he followed us. Uh, we're in the back of the minivan and he was in this Mercedes and he's driving along and he's, he followed us for about 20 minutes and then he took off. And then they dropped us off in this little town. We got a taxi and went back to Aleppo and then I went to the guest house and the person uh, who had been hosting me in the guest house was waiting because she'd been like, oh, one of my guests didn't come home. It was about seven in the morning and I explained to her what had happened and she sort of nodded and she said, okay, you have to leave immediately. <laughs> and I got my stuff and went to, went to Damascus. 
<laughs> and, you, and that's why you were here today to tell us Yeah, exactly. So you had this plan. You had this plan. You applied to the Australian Defence Force to be embedded as a journalist in Iraq. They had just started this embed program. And I thought it was pretty pie in the sky because I was like, you know, I'm from Ralph magazine. I want to write this Ralph story. Could you send me to a war zone? I was like, well, I don't think that's going to happen. But after I had filed that request, that's when I suffered a heart attack. Where were you? What were the circumstances? Well, it was it was shortly after I'd come back from Syria, actually. It was only a couple of weeks afterwards. And we were going to a, a World Cup qualifier. I think it was Australia-Kuwait up at Moore Park. And I was in the CBD with my friends, you know, we're getting ourselves together to get a taxi and, and, and go off to this game. And I'm running along because I just saw a friend on the bus and he was going to come off the bus and join us. And I'm running alongside him on the bus, you know, sort of waving and saying, hi, oh, you know. And then it was like a, a hand just going into my chest and just sort of gripping, you know, the top of my chest. And I sort of fell down on a concrete planter and I tried to sort of like stretch it out, you know, like I I didn't acknowledge that that something significantly bad was happening. And we actually got in the taxi and we were going to, to the stadium. You know, I could still feel this pain, but I'm like, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be, it'll resolve itself. And it was only, I think it was because I was quiet in the taxi and my friends are like, what is going on? <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, I do have this pain in the top of my chest and we were going past St. Vincent's again and they said, why don't we just stop in and, and see what's happening? Well, when I went in, they were like, what's going on? And I said, oh, I just got a little bit of pain in the top of my chest. I sort of underplayed it. And then they asked about my medical history and then I'm sort of rushed downstairs for an angiogram. So um, that's where they identified that I was having an heart attack. You're like 29 at this point? 29, yep. It's very rare for a man in his 20s to suffer a stroke and then a heart attack. What was going on inside you? Well, they never fully identified why I'd had these two embolic events. It was either this predisposition to clotting in the blood that they hadn't identified and still haven't identified, or it was a case of a bicuspid valve and that the valve may have become stenotic and then flecking off, you know, little bits of matter that had gone into my brain and then into my heart. So after I had the heart attack, they took the valve out. That was one of the surgeries that I had. So you went under and came out again. How did it feel to come out of the anaesthetic? <laughs> it's it's one of the things I remember the most. I was intubated and I had the cage over my chest and I was in ICU and ICU was always darkened. And I remember waking up and having this exhilaration of just like, I'm on the other side. And there was a nurse walking past and I remember reaching over to her and grabbing her arm and I remember her saying, Oh, you know, what, what do you want, sweetheart, or something like that? And I just grabbed her and pulled her in and the touch of her just gave her, you know, a hug and she's just like, oh, you want to cuddle, you know? And it was just heaven. It was heaven. What was the scar on your chest like after the operation? Well, with these cardiac surgeries, you can quite often just end up with this, like, pretty thin white line, um, which is not particularly noticeable. But my scar, it was quite gnarly and red, especially at the top and the bottom. And the top didn't heal properly, so it created this, this sort of plume of scarage in the top of, of top of my chest. But 
the relationship that I built up with this guy, I actually think became quite healthy because I was like, I'm going to own this, you know, like it was uncomfortable for me to wear certain shirts because of the top of the scar and it was still weeping and then it took a long time to close and still it was itchy. Feeling the scar on my clothes, it reminded me of, of the events. And so I just started wearing these open neck shirts and just wearing it out and just like, this is mine and, you know, this is, this is my accessory and, you know, like I, now I don't think about it at all, but I became quite proud of it. <laughs> so then the ADF told you that your application had been accepted. Yeah. You were able to go to Iraq as an embedded journalist. Why did you want to go? Well, it was curiosity more than anything else. You know, like I read everything that I could about that war. To me, it seemed to be a it seemed to be a great iniquity and a great tragedy that the invasion had happened. And I was, I suppose, personally embarrassed that Australia had decided to be one of the four countries that that had a military contribution to Iraq when the invasion started. The decision to go and do that didn't comport with my understanding of what Australia was. And there was this thing in the back of my mind that I was like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll go over there and I'll, it'll all sort of make sense. It'll be like, I understand why we were there. I wanted to go there and see it for myself. You spoke to soldiers afterwards who'd suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. Did it strike you that some of them had been through something like what you'd been through? I mean, yes, you're not a combat soldier. You haven't been involved in, in shooting and killing and suffering the moral injury that's involved sometimes in, in, in these situations. But the men who had been there often found when they came home they were changed and they often say similar things to what you were saying after your stroke. Like, I don't feel like I'm the same person. Was there a connection there to your mind? Yeah, the phrase that gets bandied around is the new normal. And the thing that I sort of related to was that after my stroke and my heart attack, I wanted to revert to where I had been previously, but my brain had changed. And you can't go back to where you had been previously. You have to reassemble your life after this event has happened because your brain has changed. I think that's true of traumatic events also in that you cannot wish away the memory of these things happening. And that's true of PTSD, which is unprocessed memory, or moral injury, which is processed memory that you can't reconcile with. I think you have to acknowledge that these things have happened, that your life has changed, that your brain has changed. Trauma especially, it has this neurological aspect to it that it can change your cognition, it can change your, your memory, it can change everything in the way that a brain injury can change you as well. Physically, neurologically Physically, change the yeah, brain. Yeah, that's right. But I think you have to recognise that you're changed and you have to change your circumstances because you are changed. So after all that, you fell in love with a woman named Claire. You got a little girl together and it's been two decades nearly since you've had that stroke. I used the analogy before of you, that it was a bit like moving into a new house in the same head. Is that a good analogy? Is that how it felt? And do you miss that old house you used to live in? Well, I don't because all of my things are still in my new house, you know. It's like all the things that were important I managed <laughs> right. to retain. The funny thing about the stroke and, and the heart attack is when they happened, I was like, these are defining moments in my my personality and in, in my life and in myself. But then as you get older, you're kind of like, it's as profound as other things that happen as well. It's just sort of folded into the dish that is you. You write how crazy in love you are with your partner and with your beautiful baby daughter. Is this a kind of neurological event itself? A bit <laughs> like the stroke? Yeah, love. I think it is. I mean, it, trans it transfigures the brain, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, 
My my two-year-old just this morning has an obsession with Flash Gordon and this, <laughs> the Queen song Flash Gordon. And she's just there bouncing along and like waiting for the little grabs from the film and hugging me. And I've got this, this feeling like there's just this, oh, you know, my chest. And I was like, this is going to be affecting me. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to think about it too much because you're kind of like, you could pathologize that experience and you could say, oh, it's just, you know, dopamine or whatever it is because, you know, I have this closeness with this stuff. That's a really boring way to talk about it too, isn't it? I know, yeah. but if you know about yeah. it, it's tough not to think about yeah. it that way. But I, you know, like I sort of credit myself for, for just being in that moment and just going, oh, this is so good. Great to speak with you, Ben. Thank you for sharing your you story. You too, Richard. Ben McElvey's book is called A Scar is Also Skin. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it. We're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes, once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app.